This is just a recording of a PowerPoint that is narrated on YouTube and it is linked under class 12 under the other PowerPoints. There is no separate PowerPoint for you to print out and go over. I just did this as a courtesy so you could listen to it on the podcast rather than having to watch the video. It's all just extra FYI information anyway, so don't stress about it. Okay, so this is your GU lecture uh, for class 12. So we're going to talk about some different diagnostic studies. Um, first, ba review some basic anatomy, talk about some reasons for renal failure, and uh, lastly with kidney, and with kidney transplant. So the urinary system, uh, this process starts in the kidneys, the nephrons, the tubules, the loops, the glomerulus, remember that stuff from AMP. Uh, these are where the whole process starts and takes place, and the main goal is to filter the blood to maintain our homeostasis. So remember, the body's always trying to keep things in balance, and the kidneys do uh, that with a lot of different chemicals, which we'll get into in a bit. So erythropoietin. Uh, erythropoietin is produced where? It um, stimulates red blood cells in the bone marrow. Okay, so it starts the production of red blood cells. The kidneys also activate vitamin D and they produce and secrete renin. And regula renin regulates what? The blood pressure. And it's produced in the juxtoglomerular cells in response to decreased perfusion, uh, decreased arterial blood pressure, decreased serum sodium, increased urine sodium, and activates angiotensin and angiotensin and then angiotensin 1 is converted to angiotensin 2 by ACE, and that's where ACE inhibitors work. That's angiotensin converting enzyme. So now you know what that means when you see those drugs. Angiotensin 2 stimulates aldosterone from the adrenal cortex, and then that leads to sodium and water retention. Okay, so that is the deal with renin. Um, prostaglandins. Then prostaglandins... Um, they are uh, they happen in response to, to pain and they uh, vasodilate. So here's a picture of the functional unit of the kidney, the nephron. So we've got the glomerulus, um, and that does selective filtration. The proximal tubule, remember the difference with distal and proximal, so the proximal is going to be closer to the start point reabsorbs about 80% of your electrolytes and water. All this is on the next slide, so you don't need to write this down. Um, reabsorbs glucose, amino acids, bicarbonate, secretes hydrogen ions, and creatinine. And then the loop of Henle, that's the loop down there at the bottom, uh, reabsorbs sodium and chloride in the ascending loop, and reabsorption of water in the descending loop. Concentration of filtrates. And then the distal tubule secretes potassium, hydrogen, ammonia, and resorbs water. And then the collecting duct is where um, the resorption of water takes place, most of it. Okay, so that's talking about that. So from each kidney, a ureter leads to the bladder. 
uh, these work through peristalsis to have one-way flow, so we normally do not get urine backing up into the kidney. Um, they're smooth muscle and longitudinal and circular in the ureter. So then that leads to the bladder. Our normal um, output is about 1,500 milliliters a day. Now it's going to vary, of course, uh, with how much you drink and just how the rest of, you know, how your health is. If anything is wrong, it could decrease or increase that. Then from the bladder, we have one urethra, and that's a small muscular tube that leads to the outside. Urethrovesical unit. Okay, this is made of transitional epithelium, or rug eye. Uh, we talked about rug eye in the stomach also. When the bladder fills up, it sends signals to the brain, and we either tense or relax to hold our urine or to void. So when we have problems in the brain or spinal cord, that can affect the bladder. Also, some diseases can affect it too. So there's just your basic anatomy picture of what we just talked about. Two kidneys, each one with the ureter, to the bladder, to the urethra. Oh, back up to the to this one. So with the bladder filling, um, when it reaches about 200 to 250 mils, we start to feel the urge to void. When it gets to 400 to 600, we're getting uncomfortable. And then 600 to 1,000 is our normal um, maximum capacity for people. Okay, so that's just an indication of about how much is in each void. So our physical assessment. Um, subjective data. We're going to ask the patient if they feel distended. Um, ask them when they've last peed or voided. Uh, you're going to palpate, inspect, percuss, and listen. And there just tells a little bit more about each one of those there. Some terms for the urinary system problems that we might have. Uh, we've probably talked about all of these before, just to review there. Um, one that is not listed there is pyuria, and that would be uh, like pus or uh, white blood cells in the urine. So let's talk about some diagnostic studies. First we have a urinalysis, and this is just a basic um, test. This is usually the first thing done to obtain a baseline and, and to see where they're at, if they have anything uh, out of whack in there with, with the electrolytes or any blood cells present. So it's a routine collection, can be any time of day. We're usually gonna give them a little to uh, towelette to, to wipe off with before, but it doesn't have to be you know super clean. It's not a, a clean catch or anything. And um, it needs to be refrigerated and examined within one hour of collection. And then a urine culture and sensitivity, or CNS, you hear it called. This is the clean catch, so it's caught midstream. So you begin to urinate into the toilet a little bit and then catch it after the first little bit comes out. And that's just to allow the, the um, first few mils to flush out any, any bacteria that might be along the surface of the uh, urethra or, or the, uh, the outside genitals. So um, clean catch, start, catch it, and then finish in the toilet. And they're gonna use this to detect UTIs and the culture and sensitivity means they're going to um, do a culture of it and, and find out what kind of bugs are growing in there, what kind of bacteria you have, 
and then the sensitivity determines what kind of antibiotics it's going to be sensitive to so they know how to treat it. Uh, composite urine collection, this is going to be over a period of time and it can be anywhere from 2 to 24 hours and it will need to be refrigerated. And then there's a 24-hour urine collection for creatinine clearance. This is a 24-hour collection. So how this goes is you discard the first specimen and then you start going into this jar, this big uh, container, and you do it for 24 hours, can't miss one. If you, if you miss one, you have to start over again. And then you keep the last void. So you discard the first one, keep the last one at the 24-hour mark, and then they're going to um, run tests for creatinine clearance. And there's a formula there that figures that out. The normal is about 85 to 135 milliliters per minute. Okay, next we have the concentration test. So think really hard about making urine. Now, if you're dehydrated, what's your concentration of your urine gonna be like? It's gonna be up or down? Gonna be up. It's going to be very concentrated if you're dehydrated. Okay. So to do this, um, they're going to have them be MPO, and then they collect three specimens uh, an hour apart. Um, urine cytology. This is a clean catch, and this is where they're going to look for um, evidence of, of cancer or abnormal cells from the bladder or the structures, the uh, urethra, perhaps. Residual urine, uh, this is going to be, this is going to determine how much urine is left in the bladder after someone urinates. So you've probably already done this in the clinical setting um, where you do a, a bladder scan. We, we don't want to just jump to the catheterization like it says here. Um, if it's me, I'd like you to scan me before you catheterize me, please. Uh, the scan, the ultrasound will tell how much fluid is remaining. And the normal finding would be less than 50, um, but as you've probably seen in clinical when somebody's had catheter taken out, uh, they tend to get some urinary retention, and so they're going to end up having more left behind in there. And this is especially going to be true with um, men who've had TERPs. They've had surgery in there. It's going to be a, a while before they're able to urinate uh, normally, and sometimes it seems like the doctors, well, in their rush to get them out of the hospital, they seem to take the Foley out too soon. I think most nurses would agree with that because the patients end up with a lot of residual urine and then they can't go home because they can't pee. Uh, protein determination, this is the, the dipstick. Um, I don't know if you guys did this in first semester, but you uh, have these little sticks with different colors and you stick it in the urine and then it tells you um, what kind of things are in there. Is there sugar, is there protein, are there any blood cells? So we don't want protein in the urine. So it should be zero to trace amounts, okay? But the dipstick is the simple test for that. Okay, some other diagnostic studies, talking about the blood, bun and creatinine. You hear these always together. BUN is the concentration of urea in the blood. And normal there is about 10 to 30. And creatinine is the end product of muscle breakdown. So that's also going to um, tell you how, how well your kidneys are working. The bun to creatinine ratio, normal should be like 10 to 1. Um, don't get excited if it's you know 11 to 1 or something like that. It's um, it, In a normal person, it's going to be around that ratio. Um, when it's going to be out of whack, it's going to be way out of whack. Like it might be 10 to 4 or something like that. So um, 
use some common sense when you're interpreting labs. Uh, here's just some normal um, blood volume, blood values. You, you've already seen all of these before, I'm sure. And then we'll move into um, radio, radiological studies. KUB, you'll hear this ordered, and that's an x-ray. It stands for kidneys, ureters, and bladder. So all it is is an abdominal pelvic x-ray. And they may order a bowel prep for this because if there are contents in the colon, uh, the colon is in front of, of the kidneys and the, and the bladder, so it may block it. So they will have to do, probably will have to do a bowel prep here. IVP, intravenous pyelogram, and that's an x-ray of the urinary tract after they inject contrast material into the veins. Uh, what do we have to ask before we ever do that? If they're allergic to iodine or shellfish. And patients who have problems with their kidneys um, should not probably receive this because it can be nephrotoxic. Sometimes they still have to, you know, there's no way, no way around it sometimes. Um, so they'll give them some drugs to help clear the kidneys. Acetylcysteine is, is uh, a drug that they give. And prep, so we're going to want to empty the bowel again there at 8 hours MPO. Uh, they do need to be consented before we do a dye, so they'll need to sign for that. And we also want to tell them that they're going to feel warm. They may feel flushed and salty. They may taste salty, saltiness um, during the injection. So it's a good thing to teach them that, because otherwise, if you push something and then they all of a sudden get really hot, they're going to freak out that they're getting uh, an adverse reaction. So um, always warn somebody when you're when they're when you when you know that there's a side effect that they're going to receive. And then afterwards, we want to push fluids to help flush that contrast out. We want to get that out of the kidneys so they don't uh, have problems. Then we have anti-grade pyelogram and retrograde pyelogram. Um, you can read more about these, but uh, they're, they're similar, but the dye is injected directly into the kidney, into the renal pelvis usually, and then they uh, see where it travels. So the picture there, you can see it in the renal pelvis uh, going to the ureters, and it can, it'll go on then to the bladder. Cystoscopy. Uh, some of you may have seen this if you travel to the OR. Um, this is where they put a scope into the urethra. And they use this to see what's going on in there. Uh, if there's a bleed, they need to cal uh, cauterize. If there's stones, they want to see what kind of stones, how big they are, if they can get them out. So anytime they need to go inside there and take a look, they're going to put this flexible scope into the urethra. And they can go... Um, all the way through, you know, through the urethra, into the bladder, all the way up to the ureters. These, these scopes are really long, so they can go all the way up to the renal pelvis. And you can see, and you can flush things out, and, and sometimes they have, um, they can cauterize or they can grasp little stones and pull them out. So cystoscopy is an OR procedure, so they will be um, sedated. And so therefore, they'll need to be eight hours NPO. They will have to do a consent. And they're going to be put up in the stirrups. So an important thing we need to remember here is when they come down from the stirrups, um, we want to take the legs down together gently and slowly. 
and that requires two people. It's not good on your back if you try to take both legs of somebody down out of the stirrups. And the reason we want to do it gently and slowly is because there's a risk for hypertension. Um, so that's what the um, hypotension, rather, I'm sorry, as the blood rushes back to the legs. So that's what the scope looks like there. And uh, the, the little port here uh, is going to be connected to a camera, I mean to a, a, a monitor. There is a camera inside there. So it's going to be connected to a monitor. So it's not like the doctor's looking through his eye at this little piece here. It's going to be projected up on a big, um, you know, HD screen so you can see the inside of everything very clearly. Okay, some other diagnostics, uh, renal ultrasound, that's self-explanatory, MRI, everybody knows what that is, and we know that if we have pacemakers or metal inside, we cannot use that. CT scan, same kind of idea, we know about that. Um, assess for iodine sensitivity again. And make sure that the lab values are on the charts um, before that, because the physician's gonna wanna see that their butt and creatinine are relatively normal or stable. Uh, a renal arteriogram or angiography. And this is where they're going to um, put a catheter in the femoral artery, so in the groin. They're going to pass it up to the aorta, the abdominal aorta, so in the abdomen area, up to the level of where the renal arteries are. And then they're going to shoot some contrast in there. And that's going to help them see the difference if it's a is it a cyst is it a tumor uh, what's going on in there in that area they'll also do this to do a workup for a donor who's going to donate their kidney um, they just want to go in there and see that everything is good all those arteries are open and and clear and that uh, they're you know these are going to be good kidneys to transplant into somebody so again we have the dye uh, assessed for an allergy going to do the consent going to have the bone and creatinine on the chart Post-op, whenever we're going into the femoral artery, that is a large vessel. So what do you think is going to be the big precaution? Bleeding. Yeah, so we need a pressure dressing on there, and then it's going to need to be assessed very uh, frequently to make sure that there isn't any um, bleeding there. And when we have uh, a, a large wound like that, you don't just look at the dressing or around the dressing for bleeding. You want to also look underneath because pooling could exist. There could be it could be dripping and it's uh, pooling underneath them, or also um, assess the tissue underneath there too because it could be pooling on the inside. So we want to make sure that the, that, that the back of the thigh is not all um, boggy or getting bruised or you know looking like it's um, full of blood. So you need to be very aware of bleeding when a large vessel like that is pierced. Uh, potential complications, allergic reactions, renal damage vascular complications just talked about. So that's what it looks like when they shoot the dye in there and it goes all through the kidney. And it kind of looks like a, tr a tree if you turn it on its side. Looks like a pretty autumn tree. So, okay, we just talked about that. Signs and symptoms of problems. And then, this, so this is how it goes in. So this is your femoral artery. Goes up in there to, to the where it branches off from the abdominal aorta and then it goes up into one kidney or the other. Here's some other um, tests here we're not really gonna talk about. You can, you can read about them. Some of them evaluate the muscle tone, um, if someone's gonna feel their bladder being full or not. Um, it can look at the 
amount or degree of obstruction that they might have? Are they getting um, nervous stimulation? What happens when the bladder gets full? That kind of thing. So you can read up on those. Not, not that important. Now, remember, you will cover renal failure in a lot more detail in 220. So this is just kind of an overview. So um, GFR, what's that stand for? Glomerular filtration rate. And the normal should be about 125 mils per minute. And that is reflected by the urine creatinine clearance. That's why we do that test. So end-stage renal disease uh, is diagnosed when the GFR is less than 15. So that's quite a difference, right? It goes down from 125 to 15. And there's degrees um, of renal failure. Look how sad she is. She has chronic uremia. Um, this just talks about the different things in organs that is going to uh, be affected by renal failure. So you can take a minute and look over that chart. So the most noticeable change is going to be to the skin, and this is known as a uremic frost. So it's dry, pale, itchy, kind of gray, frosty looking. Okay. So when somebody has uremic frost, we need to be concerned with nail care. Uh, make sure their nails are short and that their hands are clean because they're going to itch. And so if they itch and they have nails and they you know, scratch something open, hands are dirty, they're already immunocompromised because of their sickness, um, it could get real bad real fast. So that's just something simple that a nurse can do is um, take care of their nails. There's some bad bruising that might occur. Some other problems with the reproductive system might occur. Nutrition. Uh, now generally, when, with, uh, with a few exceptions, uh, when someone has kidney trouble, we're going to restrict protein. Okay, so with chronic kidney disease, we're going to have them have 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. They're also going to have a water restriction. Um, the intake is going to depend on how much they're putting out. Okay, so that's not something that's standardized across the board. Um, just be aware there probably will be a protein restriction and a water restriction. Okay, and this is another reason of why when somebody rings their call light and it's not your patient, you don't go in and just fill up their water jug because they asked you to. Right, we have to know what's going on with them. It could really do some damage. Also, sodium restriction. Uh, pretty much everybody should be on a sodium restriction. There's way too much sodium in the American diet. Um, so they got to be instructed to avoid high sodium foods and not use salt substitutes because salt and sodium are not exactly the same and also salt substitutes um, have a lot of potassium and when someone's kidneys are messed up, guess what? We don't want them having a lot of potassium either because potassium is one of the electrolytes that's excreted by the kidneys and if the kidneys are messed up, they're not going to excrete the potassium. So we want them to have about two to four grams per day. So here's an example of some high potassium foods. Those are all really good foods for most people. Uh, this is you know, what, what we should prescribe for most people, um, but not for kidney people. Also, we want to restrict phosphate. And phosphate is going to be in foods that we know have calcium, so a lot of your dairy products. So watch out for that. So we want to look out for signs and symptoms of fluid overload. 
So food volume excess, we know about that, right? And hyperkalemia, so be aware of our electrolyte disturbances. And we've got, we want to tell them to be very careful to adhere to their diet. But if they're in this situation, it's quite possibly due to um, diabetes, obesity, um, high blood pressure, so they probably aren't the best people at adhering to a diet if they've gotten to this point. Just saying. All right, next talk about, let's talk about kidney transplant. The latest figures I could find were from 2009. And in this country, there was 17,736 kidneys transplanted. And almost half of them were from living donors now. So there's almost 72,000 people on the waiting list, or there were at the end of 2009, so that was a few years ago, but um, it's probably not getting any better. Uh, this is a, a good website here. It has a lot of interesting stats and links to tell you more about it. So if you're interested in kidney transplantation, uh, look that up and do some, do some exploring on there. Um, this is showing how the number of transplants has generally been going up. There was a little dip there in 2008, it looks like, um, but it's on the way back up again. Um, an example to show you how things have gotten worse, in 1980, the deaths from end-stage renal disease were 10,478, so 10,000. In 2009, it was 90,118. Okay, so we've got uh, a lot of problems in this country with obesity and diabetes, and uh, those are the big killers of the kidneys. So um, as you can see from this chart, it is just going up and getting worse. So the one-year survival rate um, is extremely good, 90% for cadaver transplants, 95% for live donor transplants. So if, if you're lucky enough to, to get a kidney, and you're not one of those 72,000 people still on the waiting list, when you get a kidney, you have a really good shot at a, a one-year survival rate. Um, it, it's not as good looking further, but um, you know, even three, three years is a good rate. It has a good rate, too. Well, the advantage of kidney transplant, a big one, is um, no more dialysis. So that, you know, that's something those people are, are uh, chained to that machine three or four times a week for, you know, a few hours. It really impacts your life. Um, after the first year, they basically break even. It's way less expensive to do a transplant than it is to do dialysis. So after having a transplant for one year, um, they've already broken even. So, who can receive a kidney? Well, they want the kidney to go to someone who is going to get good use of it. Okay, so younger people are going to be a little higher on the priority list. Um, someone who doesn't have a lot of comorbidities. Uh, probably not to an alcoholic unless they're famous and have a lot of money. So, they want to make sure that it's not going to go to waste, right? Uh, live donors, um, as I said, have become a lot more uh, popular. A lot more people are doing it. Um, I actually tried to do it about 10 years ago, and I started going through the process, and then I eventually was not able to. But um, they um, take it out laparoscopically, which 
generally, so it's just a small cut along the side. This is how the body is positioned. They put a few ports in there, and they go in on the flank, and they take it out. So here's a link to a video you can uh, take a look at here. This takes about three hours. They may need to remove or break uh, some ribs to get it out of there. And they're going to start this procedure an hour or two before the recipient surgery is started. So they're going to take the donor in there first and get started on that, and then they're not going to bring the recipient in until they know they've got the kidney out and it's good, and then they can move on and get the, the uh, recipient in there and put it in. So when they do put it in, um, this is how it goes. They leave the old kidney in there, and they put it in um, below it, and they reconnect the uh, arteries and veins to it, or well, they don't reconnect it, they connect it because um, it wasn't in there before. So they make sure it has good circulation going in and out, and it just hangs out there. Okay, this is um, just talking about how they're going to put it in antibiotics uh, to keep it clean. And this talks about the arteries and veins that they're using. So they clamp everything off and then they sew them together. So they do these anastomoses. And then after everything is complete, they're going to release the clamps one at a time and just check them, make sure that the blood is flowing good and there's no leakage. Um, if there is any leakage, if it's small, they can um, you know, put some gel foam on it or something to stop the bleeding, but they may have to uh, put a few more sutures in it. But once everything is unclamped and the blood flow is reestablished, uh, then they're going to start making urine. They're going to, they may give them a diuretic to speed that process along and just make sure that it's working. And once it starts working and urine has been, uh, it starts to flowing, it's good. They're done. Now, this is a video that I really want you to watch. Uh, watch this whole thing so you can. Uh, pause me now and do it or open this up in another browser come back to it later but I really want you to watch this video um, this is a 60 person transplant chain so how this works is this and this is what I was working on doing a, a few years ago is that um, I didn't have anybody specific that I wanted to give a kidney to I was just going to donate it and so what that would do it would go to um, Joe Smith over here who needs a kidney he has a sister Jenny Smith who wants to donate to him but they're not a match so I give mine to Joe and Jenny is still willing to donate so she gives hers to somebody else named Bob and Bob has a wife who is going to donate and so she gives hers to someone else and so on and so on so watch this chain it's a, this is this was at the time the biggest transplant chain um, it's a nice story so um, definitely give that a look so it's a really nice thing. 60 lives were affected, and here they all are. So post-operative care um, for the donor, it's going to be similar to laparoscopic nephrectomy. That's pretty much what it is. So they, they've taken out the kidney. Um, they're going to have uh, you know, a little flank pain, small incision, and uh, we're going to need to monitor their renal function, monitor their hematocrit, um, they're going to have daily labs at least once a day and monitor their uh, urine flow.
the post-op care for the recipient. Um, so this is um, a little bit of a bigger surgery than it is for the, for the donor. Um, they're going to start putting out a lot of urine right away, and there's a few reasons for that. This other kidney is going to be really good at making, making urine, right? And the kidneys that they have are not so good. So they haven't been making a lot of urine, and now all of a sudden they're going to. Um, they've also been given a lot of fluids during the operation, just like any other surgery, and they may have been given diuretics too, like I said. And then initially the renal tubules may just be a little bit confused about what's going on there. So urine output is going to have to be replaced milliliter by milliliter every hour. So do you think we're going to very carefully monitor the urine with the kidney recipient? Yes. Okay, if tubular necrosis is occurring, they may have to go back on dialysis. We don't want that. Rejection, this is the biggest problem with any transplant. Um, they, so the kidney, kidney matching, it's not quite the same as uh, blood donation matching. You know, with blood types, there's only a few of them, and, and the matching is very specific. Uh, with kidneys, it's a much more complex process. So there's several points that need to match, and it's nearly impossible to get a complete match. So what they do is they find someone who is as close as possible from the donor pool, and then they treat them with um, immunosuppressants to suppress that immune response, that um, uh, rejection that the body is trying to do. Okay, there's a foreign object that's been put into my body, and you know, the body doesn't know that it's supposed to be there, so it starts to fight it. So they give them immunosuppressants to suppress that reaction. Um, this can occur immediately, or it can occur over time. Um, they will have to be on immunosuppressants for life. So, you know, all the problems that are going to come from that, too. They can't really be around anybody that's sick. It's dangerous to be in public places, around a lot of people. So, um, wound infections can also occur, and that's, you know, not going to be made any better by the immunosuppressants. So it can occur from the uh, incision, uh, IV lines, drains that they're going to have in there, or they could get a pneumonia if they're not using their IS and getting up and walking. So this is uh, a big problem that uh, recipients face. Uh, another sad thing is that they can have a recurrence of the original problem. So they might end up having glomerular nephritis, uh, they could have nephropathy, they probably still have diabetes, right? Uh, so problems are going to still happen from that, or the kidney could get um, sclerosed. So unfortunately, getting a kidney transplant is not just you know the the end, the, the happy the happy ending, and everything's groovy. Um, they may end up needing a second one, so then they have to go back on that list and go through the whole process again. So kidney transplantation is a great thing, but it's not um, the you know the happy ending that everybody was hoping for necessarily. So we want to um, encourage them to accept that they have this chronic disease and it needs to be managed. So they really need to be very careful about what they eat. They got to maintain their ideal body weight. They probably have to lose weight initially. Um, keep them free from infection. So keep them away from 
groups of, of kids and large crowds and things like that. And uh, whenever anybody is has a cold, you know, don't hang out with them. Um, they're going to need to have regular blood work to make sure all their levels are within acceptable ranges. So this is something that goes that they take into account when they're deciding who to give the kidney to. Is this somebody who cares about their health and they're not smoking and they're not drinking and they're not 400 pounds and you know they're going to do what it takes to keep this kidney? Because if not, I've got you know a 14-year-old kid here who's in really good shape and through no fault of his own, he needs a kidney too. So I'm going to give it to him. Okay, so it's very important that, that they evaluate that the people are able to do what they need to do to make the operation a success. All right, and that is it for class 12.